0: The most notorious incarnation of the Hellfire Club is undoubtedly that of Sir Francis Dashwood. Shrouded in mystery and superstition, with rumours of orgies and satanic worship, the club met in secret in a cave system that lay 300 metres below a 14th century church that overlooked West Wickham, and it was here that these unholy acts took place. The club may be long gone, but the ghosts remain with reports of all manner of terrifying paranormal phenomena. Tonight, join me as we dare to head underground into the darkness of the Hellfire Caves. episode 24 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we find ourselves in the lair of one of Britain's most infamous societies and ask, just how haunted are the Hellfire Caves? Listen discretion, discretion is advised, is as each episode of How Haunted, Haunted will feature gruesome, gruesome tales, horrific happenings, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So, so many ghosts. Listen, ghosts. Listen on if you dare. In 1718, a club was founded in London by Philip, Duke of Wharton, and some of his aristocratic friends this secret of society was formed to bring like-minded men together where they could be themselves and do whatever they wanted away from the judgmental gaze of outsiders. Just what happened at these gatherings has been speculated upon for over 300 years. This was the Hellfire Club. That name is probably best known these days as the name of the Dungeons and Dragons Club in Netflix's brilliant Stranger Things. But back in the 18th century It was the name given to several clubs that were formed across Britain and Ireland by those in the upper echelons of society. The original hellfire club formed by the Duke of Wharton was so secretive that not a single name of the other members is known for sure. It's been suggested that the Duke's closest friends and relatives were involved, such as George Lee, who was the second Earl of Lichfield, and Trevor Hill, who was the Earl of Hillsborough, but we likely never know for sure. Wharton was only 19 years old when he founded the club, and in the same year he was made a Duke by King George I. He was a well-travelled young man, a prominent politician, and he was very, very, very wealthy. However, he also had a reputation throughout England's capital city for heavy drinking and trouble The club met on Sundays, and unlike the hellfire clubs that would follow, memberships included both men and women who were treated as equals. The location of their weekly meetings in London would change, but the Greyhound Tavern is one location we know they gathered at regularly. However, since women were not allowed in public houses at the time, meetings were generally held at other kinds of premises, such as members houses. These meetings made fun of organised religion, as there was a trend sweeping across Britain of blaspheming and ridiculing religion. The Hellfire club's president was called the Devil, and members of the club turned up to meetings dressed as characters from the Bible. They were by no means devil worshippers. It was a big joke and it was intended to shock. According to at least one source, their activities included mock religious ceremonies and they ate meals with names such as The Devil's Loin, Holy Ghost Pie and Breast of Venus. This was washed down with Hellfire Punch. In 1720, founding member Philip Wharton lost £120,000 in the South Sea bubble stock market crash. This was at a time when the average annual salary for a middle class Londoner was £200. He lost the equivalent of £22 million in today's money. In a surprisingly well-humoured response to his newly found disastrous financial situation, he hired a hearse and musicians and he held a public funeral for the South Sea company. He would later sell Mount Pelier Hill in Dublin to William Connolly, and as we all know from the Dublin Hellfire Club episode, a hunting lodge was built upon the summit that would later become the home of the infamous Irish Hellfire Club. Wharton's Hellfire Club was disbanded, reluctantly, in 1721, when King George I was pressured by political opponents of Wharton, and he passed a bill against horrid immorality. This was aimed at the Hellfire Club. After his Hellfire Club had come to an end, only three years after forming, Wharton, now having a taste for secretive societies became a Freemason, and in 1722 he became the Grand Master of England. Wharton would die on the 31st of May 1731 of alcoholism, he was only 32 years old. The Hellfire Club was resurrected like a phoenix from the flames of hell in 1746 when Sir Francis Dashwood founded what would become the most notorious incarnation of the club. It was never actually called the Hellfire Club, but that's exactly what it was in every other aspect. Dashwood's club had a variety of names during its relatively short existence, but it began life as the Order of the Knights of Sir Francis, a parody of religious orders that existed at the time. Dashwood had, much like Philip Duke of Wharton, been thrust into too much too young, is his father passed away when he was just fifteen years old, and he inherited his estates and the title of second baronet of Dashwood of Westwickham. Dashwood travelled widely, and he earned himself a scandalous reputation while doing a grand tour of Europe. He impersonated King Charles the Twelfth of Sweden while in Russia, and attempted to seduce Tsarina Anne. He was said to have acquired a fondness for art and literature, as well as brothels. On one occasion he left England in 1729 for 2 years. He spent time in Italy visiting a number of monastic communities, and it was when he returned that he first had the idea to create his very own Hellfire Club. He described it as, a burlesque institution in the name of Sir Francis. He also said it was, founded as it were, in direct contradiction to nature and reason. Club meetings were said to have included Grand Banquets, Drinking to Excess, Mock Rituals, and Wenching. But as with all incarnations of the Hellfire Club, what actually took place is a great mystery lost to time. The club originally met at the George and Vulture Tavern, which still exists today and is now a chop and steakhouse. In 1752, Dashwood moved the group's headquarters to his family home in West Wickham, which was named West Wickham House. The first meeting here was held on the 30th of April, and the group was renamed the Orders of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham. Before long the meeting place of the order was changed once again, this time to a location six miles away and far more befitting of the club, considering their satirical take on religion. Sir Dashwood leased the ruins of 12th century Medmanham Abbey on the River Thames from his friend Francis Duffield. This Cistercian Abbey was perfect, it was remote, accessed by a boat on the river, and it was large enough to accommodate the swelling membership of the club, which was now known as the Monks of Medmenham. It was in a state of disrepair as it hadn't seen any use since Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries in 1536, so decay had long since set in, and now only a few columns and walls were standing from the original structure. It was rebuilt with a cloister, with six new arches and a new tower. Behind the cloister was a chapter, or common room, which was, and I quote, "...fitted up with the same good taste, and the glare of light is judiciously excluded by the pleasing gloom of stained glass, chiefly coronets, roses and portcullises." To add to the opulence of the order's new home, the ceilings were decorated with fresco paintings, By Italian painter Giuseppe Borgnus. He had been brought over to London in 1751 by Dashwood to paint the ceilings and interior decor of his own West Wickham house. Over the entrance of the Abbey was placed in stained glass the club's motto, do what thou wilt, though this was written in French. While restoration was underway on the Abbey, Dashwood also began work to restore an existing church atop a hill which dominated the skyline of the area raising the 14th century west tower and topping it with a great golden ball, possibly inspired by the 17th century Punta della Dogana in Venice, and later he would build a new family mausoleum. Below them, within the hill, he had instructed the creation of a series of underground caverns carved out from an existing chalk mine. Meetings of the monks at the abbey occurred twice a year, with invites being sent out by the steward of the club. There was also an annual general meeting, which usually occurred in June or September, and lasted a week. The list of those believed to be members is immense. No records exist, as they were all burned in 1774, but it's believed that members could have potentially included Sir Francis's half-brother, Sir John Dashwood King, his cousin, Sir Thomas Stapleton, Club Secretary Paul Whitehead, Radical journalist and later politician John Wilkes, although he went by the pseudonym John of Aylesbury, Frederick Prince of Wales, Charles Douglas who was the 3rd Duke of Queensbury, John Stuart who was the 3rd Earl of Bute, George Doddington who was the 1st Baron Malcolm, Sir William Stanhope who was the 1st Earl of Harrington, Sir Francis Delaval of Seton Delaval Hall in Northumberland, Sir John Van Luton, Henry Vansittart, who in 1759 would become governor of Bengal in India, Judge Robert Vansittart, Politician Thomas Potter, Francis Duffield, from whom the Abbey was leased, Edward Thompson, John Montague, who was the 4th Earl of Sandwich, Physician Benjamin Bates II, Painter William Hogarth, Chevalier de Eon, the transsexual French spy, and Politician George Selwyn. He was again necrophiliac with an obsession with public executions. English writer Horace Walpole who was the fourth Earl of Orford was a close friend of George Selwyn and he visited the Abbey and wrote that the behaviour of the monks was virtually pagan. Dionysus the ancient Greek god of wine and ecstasy and Venus the Roman goddess of love and sex were the deities at whose altars they worshipped. John Wilkes who was a member described the purpose of the club as a set of worthy, jolly fellows, happy disciples of Venus and Dionysus, got occasionally together to celebrate women and wine, and to give more zest to the festive meeting. They plucked every luxurious idea from the ancients, and enriched their own modern pleasures, with the tradition of classic luxury. The members addressed each other as brothers, and the leader, who wasn't necessarily Dashwood as a changed regularly, was known as the abbot. During meetings, members were rumoured to wear ritualistic clothing, white trousers, jacket and cap, while the abbot wore the same style of clothing but in red, much like a cardinal. This was a male only club, but female guests were present, as prostitutes were hired for each meeting, and they were referred to as nuns. Contemporary Irish author Charles Johnson wrote in his novel *Chrysal* or The Adventures of a Guinea, which was released in the 1760s and it said that the monks would perform obscene parodies of Christian rites, and each meeting would be an orgy of drunkenness and debauchery. The club, as with all hellfire clubs, was suspected by the locals to be a gathering in which devil worship and black masses would take place behind those closed doors. One of the founding fathers of America, Ben Franklin, came to England in 1758 and he became a good friend of Sir Francis Dashwood. It is known that he occasionally attended the club's meetings, very much getting into the spirit of the sordid gatherings. After almost a decade of meeting at Medmenham Abbey, the slow demise of the monks of Medmenham began. In 1762 Sir Francis Dashwood's focus was required elsewhere as he was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer and he sat in the House of Lords after inheriting the title of 11th Baron Litter Spencer upon the death of the 10th Baron, his uncle John Fane. The following year prominent member John Wilkes found himself imprisoned. He had written issue 45 of the North Britain, a radical newspaper published in London. It was published on the 23rd of April 1763 and it criticised a royal speech. In which King George III praised the Treaty of Paris which ended the Seven Years' War. Wilkes was charged with libel for accusing the King of lying and he was imprisoned for a short time in the Tower of London. Wilkes challenged the warrant for his arrest, eventually winning the case, but later that year the rebellious Wilkes had the issue reprinted and he fled across the English Channel of France. He didn't escape the long arm of the law though and he was imprisoned again not being released until 1770. By the mid 1760s things looked bleak for the club, as many of the members had either left London, were too old to partake in the bawdy behaviour that each meeting saw, or they were dead. Dashwood hadn't given up on his club though, and he moved the meetings from the luxurious abbey into the man-made cave system that he would had created for this very purpose, which was situated beneath St. Lawrence's Church and the Dashwood Mausoleum. The Atmospheric Caves, known today as the Hellfire Caves, and to a lesser extent the West Wigham Caves, were excavated between 1748 and 1754. Legend says that they were dug out by a 100 men over those 6 years. They are a network of man-made chalk and flint caverns which extend 400 metres underground. The route through these underground chambers starts at the entrance hall, then you go into the Steward's Chamber, then Whitehead's Cave, through Lord Sandwich's Circle, which is named for John Montague, 4th Earl of Sandwich, then Franklin's Cave, which is named for Ben Franklin, then into the and Hall, which is supposedly the largest man made chalk cavern in the entire world, then into the Triangle, to the Miner's Cave, and finally, across a subterranean river called the River Styx is the Inner Temple, which is the final cavern and the room in which the meetings were held. It is no coincidence that this final room is separated from the rest of the cave system by the River Styx, as in Greek mythology the River Styx separated Hades from the mortal world. It is believed by some that the Inner Temple lies exactly 300 feet beneath St. Lawrence's Church with the church signifying heaven and the inner temple being hell. To match the ethos of the club, the caves were decorated with all manner of phallic symbols and other items of a sexual nature, including alcoves within the banquet and hall that were fitted with beds for all manner of sexual activities including orgies. There were mythological themes adorning the caves and hundreds of hellish carvings of evil faces in the walls throughout. Following the relocation to the caves, Dashwood removed all evidence of the club's activities in Medmanham Abbey. On the 22nd of March 1766, John Tucker who was the MP for Weymouth wrote, I was last Sunday at Medmanham and to my amazement found the chapter room stripped naked. It was as if all trace of the club ever being there had been disposed of. There had been pegs with the clothes of the members on and all the names above the pegs had been removed as had Prince of the Monks with the nuns. A publication in the same year, 1766, included a story about a prank played by the now-incarcerated John Wilkes on the Earl of Sandwich years earlier. It read, Wilkes had smuggled in a baboon of all things, but worse than this he dressed it up as a devil and concealed the poor creature in a large chest which he then rigged up so that he could open it from his chair without any of the company noticing and let the animal loose. When Wilkes felt the time was right, he pulled the cord, and out popped the disguised baboon, which leapt upon the shoulders of the Earl of Sandwich, who turned to see what he took to be the grinning devil himself. He tried to shake the creature off, but the more he shook, the more the poor creature clung on. Sandwich cried out, convinced that Satan had come to take him down to hell. Spare me, gracious devil! Spare a wretch who was never sincerely your servant! I sinned only from vanity of being in the fashion. Thou knowest I never have been half so wicked as I pretended. Never have been able to commit the thousandth part of the vices which I have boasted of. Leave me therefore and go to those who are more truly deserving of your service. I am but half a sinner." No one knows exactly when Dashwood's club ended but by the end of the 1760s it was all over, with Dashwood himself now being in his early 60s. Sir Francis Dashwood died in 1781, and he was interred in the family mausoleum he had constructed in 1765. The magnificent hexagonal structure was inspired by his travels in his earlier years, and in particular the Arch of Constantine in Rome. It was designed by architect Nicholas Revitt and built by the unfortunately named John Bastard at a cost of a little over £495. It wasn't built exclusively for members of the Dashwood family, it was also a place where his closest friends could find peace in death. A carved marble slab commemorates the extraordinary life of Sir Francis Dashwood. It reads, beloved, respected and revered by all who knew him. The mausoleum remains in the Dashwood family today, But sadly most of the 18th century urns and commemorative urns, including members of Dashwood's Hellfire Club, have been stolen, destroyed, removed or lost. The caves were operating as a tourist attraction for curious locals from 1863, but no restoration work had been carried out at all. The caves were a shadow of their former glory, as well as being dangerously unsafe. During World War II, plans were made to use the caves as a large air raid shelter if nearby towns were a threat from German bombing raids. The flint faced arch and columns at the entrance tunnel had been knocked down and placed over the entrance at the beginning of the war at the order of a Captain Hill to form a barricade if needed from a bomb blast. But this destruction of the tunnels proved fruitless as being such a rural area meant that the Germans didn't see it as a worthwhile target. So therefore the need to transform the caves into an air raid shelter didn't come to pass. Instead, following the end of the war, Dashwood's ancestor, the 11th Baronet, also called Sir Francis Dashwood, had the caves renovated and turned into a tourist attraction, which we know today as the Hellfire Caves. Renovations were difficult as no work had been carried out at all inside the cave system since the 18th century, and a lot of the ceiling had came away littering rooms with rocks and great boulders. Sir Francis formally reopened the caves in 1951 in a charge of one shilling, with candles provided free. A wave of publicity ensued and visitors started to roll in, especially when the local vicar, called Father Allen, told the Daily Mirror newspaper that my tummy wobbles like a jelly every time I pass the entrance. Father Alan then followed this by delivering a sermon denouncing the evil influence emanating from the caves. It's been a little over 70 years now since the caves reopened, and since then over 2.5 million visitors have dared to head underground into the caves, which in the intervening years have been fitted with atmospheric electric lighting, creepy mannequins of some of the club's most colourful characters, and information boards detailing the history of the hellfire caves. Daily tours take visitors along the length of the cave system, through all of the chambers, over the river Styx, and into the inner temple. Much of the profit has been donated to charities including the National Trust. There are suitably spooky seasonal events at Halloween, and Santa's Grotto makes its home in the caves at Christmas time. Many of the visitors in more recent years have been lured underground by the ghosts said to stalk the corridors and caverns. These restless souls are from the heyday of Dashwood's Hellfire Club. Ever since the caves were opened to the public in 1863, the locals have feared them, believing something evil, something supernatural is present, down there. This was backed up by frequent paranormal reportings which continue to this day. These take many forms, including the feeling of being watched, Unseen eyes watching your every move. Female visitors have claimed to feel hands stroking their hair. The crying of children is heard, which is very intriguing when you consider the history of the caves. Chanting has been heard coming from the inner temple, and in this room, where the meetings would have taken place, women have been shushed while talking amongst themselves. The two most common occurrences are footsteps being heard when there's nobody there, and people claiming that they've had gravel or stones thrown at them. Occasionally, this is said to be followed by the sound of laughing. The identity of the spirits causing these almost daily frights is unknown, but the Hellfire Caves do have some well-known ghosts that could be the blame for some of this phenomena. Paul Whitehead, the club's secretary and close friend of Sir Francis Dashwood died in 1774 after suffering from illness, but before his death, he left £50 to Dashwood with a request that read, I give to the Right Honourable Lord Lord Spencer my heart aforesaid together with £50 to be laid out in the purchase of a marble urn in which I desire may be deposited and placed, if his lordship pleases, in some corner of the mausoleum as a memorial of his warm attachment to the noble founder. Dashwood carried out his dear friend's final request and his heart was removed and placed inside a beautiful marble urn. Incidentally his body, heart excluded, was laid to rest in St Mary's Church in Teddington, alongside his wife who had passed away in 1768. The urn was placed inside the Dashwood Mausoleum and there was even a grand ceremony to mark the occasion which lasted over two hours. The epitaph on the urn was as follows, poor whitehead, unhallowed hands, this urn forbear, no gems or orian spoil, lie here concealed but what's more rare a heart that knew no guile. In the years that would follow, Whitehead's heart was frequently removed from the urn to be shown to curious visitors, and in 1829 it was stolen by an Australian soldier. Legend says that poor Whitehead's ghost haunted the mausoleum. That was until the now empty urn was moved into the caves, at which point his spirit came along with it, and here he remains forever searching for his missing heart. Visitors and staff to the caves have seen a man wander in the gloomy corridors dressed in old fashioned clothing. Some visitors believe him to be a member of staff dressed in period costume, but soon realise this isn't the case when he simply vanishes into thin air. Another equally tragic phantom is that of Suki, which was a nickname she would had since she was little, her real name was Susan. She was a pretty young girl of no more than 17 who worked at the nearby and Dragon Tavern in the late 18th or early 19th century. She dreamed of being wed to a man of higher standing in society and rejected the constant advances of local boys. One day a wealthy nobleman came to the tavern, not much older than Suki herself. She was immediately drawn to him, as was he to her, and they flirted outrageously, much to the annoyance of those boys that she would rebuffed. These angry local boys decided to teach her a lesson, and they wrote her a letter, claiming it to be from the nobleman, which said that he had fallen for her immediately and wished to elope with her. He asked if she felt the same that she should come and meet him in the caves wearing a best white dress, as this would make a perfect wedding dress. She was overjoyed and did exactly this. She was devastated to find that she had been tricked, and instead of her husband-to-be, she found three local boys who fell about laughing at her. She was angry and picked up some stones from the ground which she threw at the boys. One of the boys threw a larger stone back, hard, and it hit her on the head, upon which she collapsed to the ground. The boys were terrified, they had meant to trick her but they didn't mean her any actual harm. Rather than run away and leave her be, they carried her back to the Georgian dragon, but she died during the night. Her spirit remains within the caves where she suffered that fatal blow and many have claimed to see a beautiful young woman, dressed all in white, wander in the caves. Also, a woman's sobbing has been heard coming from rooms that are known to be empty. On one occasion a visitor was passing one of the alcoves. When what they took to be a mannequin moved, making them jump, the figure then disappeared. When they described what they had seen, it matched the appearance of Suki perfectly. This phantom bride even makes the odd appearance on camera, with visitors capturing mists and blurred forms on photographs that may just be a swiftly moving figure wearing a white dress. A little known but absolutely incredible occurrence took place in 2001, when the river sticks flooded which caused the inner temple to flood. When the water was drained away, a number of mannequins that had fallen over were put back in place. But staff were horrified to notice that the hands of all of these mannequins had turned themselves around, so they were facing out over, as if to save themselves when they had fallen. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at @HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you will see photos galore relating to the Hellfire Caves. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and you'll hear the audio as it happened. There's five episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to support the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted Is in the podcast description and over on the website if you've enjoyed this episode if enjoys the right word then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice it really does help other people to find how haunted next time out we head to sunderland in the northeast of england and we visit a 14th century castle which has a legend connected to it in which a young stable boy called roger Skelton was murdered by his master and he has never since been able to find peace. Could Roger be the reason for the paranormal occurrences which have been reported for centuries here? I investigated this historic location after dark, all alone. Would I encounter the ghost of young Roger Skelton? Let's find out together next week, when we head to Hilton Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time when we were once again asked the question How haunted? It?